and welcome to episode 48 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with nine years' experience in Brazil and China. Today, I'm very excited to break new ground on the podcast by speaking to a film critic. Allison Wilmore is a film critic at New York Magazine and for the website Vulture. I've loved New York Magazine's film reviews for years, and Allison really hits that perfect combination of insightful writing that makes you consider something new about a movie, but she also has that trademark wit and humor that always makes New York Mag reviews an entertaining read, even if you have no interest in ever seeing the movie in question. In this conversation, Allison will tell us how she got to be a critic and all-around film writer. It's also worth highlighting that this conversation could not be more timely because we discuss her recent New York Magazine cover story in which she profiled Chloe Zhao. We recorded a few weeks ago before we knew that Chloe Zhao would win the Oscar for directing and Best Picture for Nomadland. Allison managed to pull it off despite being limited to only a couple of Zoom sessions with Zhao. I highly recommend you go check out her story about Zhao, so look in the episode description for a link to that. Also, there was so much good stuff in this interview that I've decided to spin off a bonus episode. In the bonus episode, I'll ask some of my more inside baseball questions about how New York Magazine operates. Allison will also talk about the ins and outs of being a film critic, including freelancing versus working full-time. If you want to know the nitty-gritty about being a film critic, definitely check out that bonus episode. I'll post that tomorrow, Monday, in the podcast feed. So now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Allison Wilmore, a film critic for New York Magazine and Vulture. Thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. Thanks for having me. To set the scene a little bit, if you could tell us a little bit about your surroundings, where you are geographically, the physical space around you, if you're in your apartment or where, and uh, a little bit about what your past week of work has been like. Sure. Yeah, so I live in Brooklyn, like so many people in the New York media. I I stayed here. I, I didn't leave over you know, the last year, though I understand why a lot of people did. Um, New York apartments are really not made for spending all of your time indoors. And I have been spending a lot of time staring at these walls. But yeah, I live by myself. I have a five-month-old puppy named Samo, and you may hear him on this recording. But I've been working from home ever since, you know, March. I was one of those people who would work from the office sometimes. The New York Magazine office is still in Battery Park City. Not that anyone, I think, is still is working out of there currently. And I would work from the office sometimes and work from home other times. And when everything shut down, I had to like go venture back in when I was allowed to pick up stuff. But that's it. I have a Brooklyn apartment. I have my setup. I work at the dining table, even though that's terrible for my posture. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, I'm out here right on the edge of Queens, a neighborhood I like a lot and that I've been in for the past six years. And, you know, for the last week, one of the challenges of being a film critic or a film journalist in general during COVID and during lockdown is that as the world ground to a halt last March, so did movies, at least in movie theaters. You know, there was this huge seismic readjustment and we're still kind of living with that even as slowly movie theaters are opening up again and studios are putting movies that they bumped back on the calendar. So there is this sense of a reemergence of something like at least closer to what business as usual used to be like. 
But I'm still looking a lot more at streaming titles and writing kind of longer essays or essays that are not necessarily pegged to anything in particular. You know, there is a bit more space to do evergreen fare. It has been exciting as well, you know, like all of the kind of smaller ideas that we've had, there's been more space to kind of pursue them. Uh, so this week, I wrote a review of the movie Nobody, which is an action movie starring Bob Odenkirk. It is um, produced by one of the directors of the original John Wick, and is very much a John Wick style action movie, a kind of with Bob Odenkirk as an unlikely middle-aged action hero. So I wrote a review of that, and I wrote an essay for a package that we had done on Vulture about character actors. And I did an essay that was about the kind of particular history of Asian American character actors and how often in the history of Hollywood that has meant being a character actor who is not white has meant choosing between what like is a character in the colorful sense and a racial caricature. And yeah, that's interesting. I, we, Heroes was on TV yesterday and mm-hmm. I was looking at it and I was like, is this a little bit racist now? Was this, uh, you know, looking back at it, you know, the portrayal of the kind of Asian main characters, and uh, I wasn't so sure the Japanese character's kind of a buffoon. I didn't watch it originally. My wife had seen it. But I think a lot of these things that weren't even that long ago, now even we're looking at a lot differently. Absolutely. When was the last time you were in a movie theater? The last time I was in a movie theater was actually... God, it must have been. It was in the summer when Tenet, I don't know if you kept up with the saga of Tenet, the um, (laughs) Christopher Nolan movie that, you know, was supposed to be the first big movie back when movie theaters opened. So it kept getting pushed and pushed as it became clear that movie theaters were not going to reopen all over grandly, you know, like all over the world (laughs) uh, anytime soon. And eventually got this kind of like half release where it was in theaters that were open in the U.S., which kind of varied state by state. It was released internationally. And so it was very messy. And it also played in theaters for months because there was nothing else, you know, for theaters that were open. So one of the nice side effects of lockdown has been something that I hope goes on forever, which is that at some theaters they started offering this thing where you could buy a movie theater out as like a private screening for like sometimes 150 bucks. Wow. And they would say, you can bring 15 people that will be socially distanced, you know, in this, I don't know, 60 person or 80 person movie theater. So a bunch of us from the Vulture team, we (laughs) bought out a theater and we carpooled to Connecticut with the windows down and masks on and we watched Tenet in, I think it was Milford, Connecticut, in a mall, in a movie theater. (laughs) But before then, it was about almost exactly a year and a week ago was the last time that I was in a movie theater before that kind of oddity. And I was seeing a Hong Kong movie that had been released for the first time. And yeah, it was funny. That was like, not long after that, everything shut down. So I do think back on that experience like a lot fondly uh, of going to see Made in Hong Kong, but it also feels very tinged with doom in my memory. Yeah, I wish I could remember some of the last things I did before the pandemic, but I couldn't tell you the last time I was in a movie theater. And so we'll talk a little bit more about your current work later on, but a big part of the podcast is explaining to people how you got to where you are today. 
and we take kind of the really, really long view on that. And so uh, for this first part that's more biographical, I like to ask where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like, and if you started to show any early interest in journalism or movies or anything that you do now at a young age. So my parents are, my dad is English. He is from Southeast London, and my mom is Singaporean Chinese. She was born in China, but grew up in Singapore. They met because they both had the good fortune to have made their way into computers uh, at a time when it was a really good idea to get into computers. So my mom was a punch card programmer, and my dad had gone to a polytechnic school, it was kind of a technical institute, and become an engineer. So they were both working at the same company in London and had met there. Got married. I was born in London, and we moved to the U.S. when I was about three. So I mostly grew up in the Bay Area, in the East Bay, in a suburb that was very kind of uh, just pleasant and mostly a bunch of strip malls in between two more formed towns. <laughs> but is now, when I go back, it is like extraordinarily luxe because all of the Bay Area money that had been bubbling over for those decades made it so that it was just a very prime place to buy your first home if you were a young family. So it has good schools, you know. So I grew up in the suburb in the East Bay Area, and I liked writing. I liked movies, pop culture in general, but movies in particular. I had never met anyone. The idea that you could do that for a living felt as distant for me as the moon. Mm -hmm. You know, I had never met anyone who who wrote for a living, never met anyone in media. Everyone I knew, like all of my friends' parents, they all worked in tech for the most part, you know, it's the Bay Area. And that was the kind of first dot-com swell. My dad actually ended up, the job that brought him to California was at a place called Silicon Graphics, which is, I think, long gone but was famous at the time for making this really high-end, powerful computer that they used for computer graphics. So they used it to make Jurassic Park. <laughs> that was like one of their big claims to fame. And I do remember going to see that as a kid and just feeling kind of thrilled by that connection to, you know, oh, to have had some part on like the inside of this movie and the making of this movie felt really exciting. And that idea was, I think, the closest I came in those early days to thinking I could write about movies for a living. Mm -hmm. I went to Yale. I was an English major. It was, I think, the second person from my high school to go to Yale. And it was a very eye-opening experience. I just, you know, had no idea about East Coast private schools or <laughs> like the whole kind of strata of class dynamics that Living in the suburbs of the Bay Area, you feel kind of in this bubble. You don't mm -hmm. feel close to those things at all. So that was a kind of abrupt difference for me. Also, you know, I, as someone growing up in a suburb that was heavily East and South Asian when I was growing up and is now majority, it was a real shock to me to go to the East Coast and to not have <laughs> like many Asian Americans around me. That was something I had just taken for granted. And that was like a bit of a culture shock for me. But in school, I studied... English. I did some film, but mostly writing was my focus. And after I graduated, I kind of drifted. I was just not sure what, what I wanted to do or like what to do next. So I kind of drifted my way back to the Bay Area 
So to to this point, had you ever written a movie review in your life to this point? No, I hadn't written the movie review. Mm, no, though I actually, I don't think it's that common for people to start off doing movie reviews in high school or college. I have like one professional colleague who started that early, but actually <laughs> uh, I do feel like a lot of the people who start off that early either get tired of it or move on by the time it comes <laughs> to, uh, you know, professional opportunities. Yeah, so I didn't work for any of the college publications. I kind of floated my way back to the Bay Area and into an internship at Wired Magazine. And that was a great internship. It was a full-time paid. It was paid like $10 an hour, but it was still paid, which at the time had felt like a real rarity. And it was an internship that you actually, you know, you were encouraged to write, to pitch, even if it was little front of book stuff. I think I published something in every issue of the magazine, that all four issues when I was there. So it was a really great opportunity to kind of understand the way. It was also my first kind of understanding of how a glossy magazine worked, especially with regard to editing. You know, I would write like a three sentence blurb for front of book, and then you would watch it go through what <laughs> section editor, and then a editor above that, and then the copy editor, and it would come back as something that like only roughly resembled what you had originally written. But I also got to work with some higher up editors and to really see the process, just like, you know, helping them in terms of just sheer admin stuff. But I got to watch how that kind of top-level editing worked in a way that was very illuminating. It was a great experience. I'd also, I had like eight jobs at the time because, or in this stretch, because, <laughs> you know, none of them paid very well. But I was also working part-time at a literary magazine called the Three Penny Review. It was based in Berkeley, and it's a quarterly. It had like a staff of the founder, Wendy Lesser, and then usually like someone on half-time and that was me for a while. But yeah, and I had some other odd jobs and other internships, but it became very clear to me, especially as I was interested more and more in writing about film, that it was not something I could do in the Bay Area. That also, if I wanted to work in media, it was not going to be in the Bay Area. You know, there are only a scattering of publications there. And I mean, honestly, I think there are fewer now, you know, but there was Wired, Mother Jones, there was, you know, San Francisco Magazine, it was kind of the city's magazine that seemed mostly supported by a restaurant advertising and plastic surgery advertising, <laughs> and did some real work, but it was, I never dreamed I could get a job there or necessarily would want to, you know, and then all weeklies, I think, some of which have gone under, unfortunately, there was just not much there. I just didn't think I would be able to find a job there and especially not in the field I wanted. And so I went to New York with a, I think $3,000 and a apartment. I took sight unseen off of Craigslist. <laughs> it was in Greenpoint and it was owned by this hot smoking divinity student who had somehow like invested recklessly on the stock market and made enough to, <laughs> to buy this house in Greenpoint. He went in on it with someone he met off of Craigslist, which is, I think, one of the like bravest investments you could possibly do. But wow. he owned the top two floors. It was being renovated, and I was living in there at the time for, I think, $300 a month. Wow. It was, uh, you know, yeah, an incredible deal. And I, I don't know how much dust I breathed in, but <laughs> it was a great place to get a start. But yeah, so, you know, I, I went to New York. A lot of people I knew were in New York already, so it didn't feel quite as scary as it might have. 
And I think I was temping for a while to get by. And a few months in, I got a full-time job, actually off of Craigslist, of all things. It was a full-time but freelance job at what was called at the time the Independent Film Channel, and then became IFC, and is now, I think, like, barely a network anymore. But it was, you know, a cable channel that had been spun off of Bravo ages ago, and it was devoted to showing independent films. And it was one that I'd watched a lot back at home when I was a teenager. And I had what started off as just like an incredibly unglamorous job updating the website copy and sitting in a room that was like like a hallway so that people who were coming in would like walk through the room all the time. And yeah, there was no health insurance. It was all, it was like full time, but I had to invoice them every month. All of this said though, it was like more money than I had ever dreamed of making, which is to say, I think probably like 40 or $50,000 a year. Um, (laughs) But it felt like, you know, I was like, I can't believe it. And I also lucked into, at the time, them deciding that they were going to launch a news arm, IFC News. It was going to be on-air segments like MTV News, you know, like these little segments in which there was a host doing like largely like sponsored spots. But they wanted an online component to go with it. And I had pitched them a blog and they said yes. So I started writing a kind of news blog for them about film news. And that slowly grew into my being given writers and freelance money and being allowed to do interviews and go to festivals. I did most of this without anyone kind of really guiding me (laughs) (laughs) or sometimes editing me, which was horrifying to think about. But it within this small world, it became a big thing pretty quickly which was exciting and frightening for someone who was, I think, 24 at the time. That was my first gig. And it was one of those things that was entirely like fortuitous timing, where I happened to get this job around when they had decided to actually invest in editorial content. And it was a complicated place to do editorial content, because on one side, there's very little supervision. On the other, it's like, It's hardly uncompromised. You know, it's a company, it's a network that also owned its own film distribution sister company. So they put out their own movies that I was not obligated to cover, except that sometimes like someone from there would kind of wander over and be like, hey, why didn't you guys cover? (laughs) Um, And, you know, there was no church and state at all with regard to advertising. So I, I, you know, I benefited a lot from operating under everyone's radar until... I wasn't under anyone's radar anymore, but yeah, it was a great place to learn. But yeah, I think I do feel like I was lucky in that way. As much as I kind of crept in through this side door, I found a job that was a great place to start and to kind of learn. I got to read a lot of other people's film writing and film criticism because that was part of the just kind of blogging. But I also got to learn a lot in terms of editing people, in terms of writing. It was great. It was a really complicated place to work. Like most networks, there were just many regime changes and weird politics and groups of people would get laid off. And eventually that kind of came for me and just my department was laid off. And that was after how much time? That was, I was after a few years. It was probably three or four years, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was there for a while to the point where I was there long enough to have started a podcast with the on-air host who 
had started as an intern there, actually, and then become the on-air host. We started a podcast together under IFC. I also like got put on camera sometimes as a fill-in host, which is not something I'd wanted at all. But, you know, I figured it was good to learn. I was briefly one of the hosts of a weekly web series they founded. So there's a lot of just like getting thrown into different things uh, that were not necessarily my end goal, but that I, I tried anyway. Sure. And yeah, after that ended, I kind of got spat out onto the freelance market and it went actually more smoothly than I, I would have thought. What helped a lot was that I got a part-time job at the Tribeca Film Institute, which is the nonprofit arm of the Tribeca Film Festival. I don't think it's operating anymore, unfortunately, but like they mostly gave out film grants. So I was just doing editorial work for their website. It was easy. They were very nice. And the rest of the time I was freelancing. And then I was freelancing for the AV Club. They immediately gave me work, like very regular review work. I was working for Movie Line, which was, it was a print, I don't even know the life cycle of this. It was a print magazine that had been resurrected as a website. And then I think eventually kind of killed and turned into a YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> I think is the life cycle, but I was there for the kind of tail end of the website. Stephanie Zaharik, who is the film critic at Time now, she had brought me in to fill in because her kind of second chair critic was going on book leave. So I was doing reviews and then Stephanie left and I was just kind of there and had inherited the remaining reviews. So it was a sinking ship, I think at the time, but I was in a kind of good spot for a little bit. And then it was around that time that IndieWire approached me and said that they were looking for someone to launch a TV vertical for them. And I had never covered TV before, but they said they were looking for someone because at that point, a lot of people in independent film had started moving over to into television, either directing episodes of TV or starting to pitch shows. And now I think that line is very, very porous, but this was 2012. And it was just becoming more and more of a thing. And so they brought me on full time to be the TV editor and to basically figure out what television coverage from an independent film perspective looks like. So that was another round of just like creating a Rolodex from scratch of um, publicists and contacts and this whole other world of how television coverage works. But I remember like right when I was starting, uh, that was when girls the television show, the HBO show, was premiering at South by Southwest. And there was a really kind of easy through line there of Lena Dunham, her first film, it was like her student film, had premiered at like a far off theater at South by Southwest. And her second film, her uh, like kind of like first glossier feature, which is called Tiny Furniture, had premiered at a bigger theater. And then Girls was premiering in the Paramount, which is like the biggest theater that South by has to offer. So there was this kind of neat, I think, kind of affirmation of what I was doing in terms of launching a TV vertical. And I did get to talk to her and Judd Apatow at the festival. And that was, I think, like one of the first pieces we ran. So that was fun. There were a lot of ups and downs there. It was just me and a bunch of freelancers and the occasional intern to help me write news posts. But to fill out a whole section, a whole vertical could be challenging. But that was also when... Breaking Bad and Mad Men were running and finishing up. So there was a lot of very kind of urgent television that people were paying a lot of attention to, to write about. So 
it was a good time to be getting into writing about television, even if I think there's a lot of nightmare aspects of television criticism with regard to access that I don't miss, whether it's that you just don't get things in advance. So you have this really tight turnaround window, or you only get like a few episodes, which is traditional, right? For a lot of things, you get like three out of the 10 episodes in a season. And then you have to try and figure out a way to write a review that, you know, judging from something that like may not actually be true at all once this series goes further. I, I don't like TV criticism is complicated in that way. It has other benefits, but other kind of complications that film criticism does not. So it was fun to do, but I also was really glad to get an opportunity to focus more on film when BuzzFeed News approached me about a job opening they had. And I think at the time it had just been a writer in their entertainment section. This was in 2014, but they tailored it to me to be a film critic. So they turned the position into film critic and they hired me. And it was the first and I think the only person they ever hired with critic in their title. And it was shortly after the book's editor, Isaac Fitzgerald, had been hired a few months before. And he had given an interview about how there weren't going to be the book section was not going to contain any negative reviews. Uh. Yeah. So this interview got picked up. It became a big thing. There was a a kind of infamous response to it on Gawker, actually. I think it was the snark versus smarm <laughs> essay that was uh, written. That was just a kind of laying out of maybe the divide that was being perceived in internet writing tone at the time. And Gawker was obviously on the side of snark and BuzzFeed was on the side of smarm <laughs> in, this, in this divide. So I had to, right after being hired do an interview with my editor alongside me, basically saying, yes, I am going to be doing negative reviews. <laughs> like I will write <laughs> both positive and negative reviews. So it was an interesting, weird way to start. But BuzzFeed News was at the time like in this huge kind of growth phase. It was just like they were hiring so many people every week they would bring new hires around and introduce them to everyone. And that just got unwieldy. Like it was in the process of transitioning from a kind of small group of people where everyone knew each other into something like much larger. And so it was a really exciting time to work there. And Helen Peterson, who I worked with for years, she was hired around the same time I was. A lot of just like journalists from all over the place were being brought in. And the energy was just like really kind of young and very ambitious, but also feeling very freed up, like from a lot of traditions, media traditions, you know, there was this feeling that you could experiment with form, you could try different approaches. And like, I remember, like, I would write a piece on Out One, which is, you know, this like 14 hour Jacques Rivette movie from 1971 that they released back in theaters. I wrote a piece about that that actually did really enormous traffic. I also wrote a review that was like just a gif, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like it was really, there was a lot of space to be goofy, but also to kind of do serious, weightier stuff. And, and ideally to figure out a way to make that open to people who might not normally have thought to click on it. 
which I think for me was like the Rivette piece. It was exciting to have a traffic hit that was not about something remotely stereotypically BuzzFeed friendly. But yeah, so I, I, you know, I was there when BuzzFeed News was really being built up and was changing really quickly. I was there as BuzzFeed News kind of got more and more spun off to be its own thing. You know, when I started, we sat together with the viral team, with the, the viral content team, and that no longer became the case as the company grew and grew. But yeah, so I, you know, I worked under Ben Smith. He was the head of the newsroom. I dealt with the company kind of like on the up and up where everything seemed possible. And they did things like, God, one year they gave everyone an Apple Watch. I don't know why. <laughs> I think it was because we hit a certain traffic number. Okay. Everyone in the company got an Apple Watch. And like in the first two years I was there, the Christmas bonus would be, the holiday bonus would be like 800 something dollars. It was like amount calculated to the after taxes you would get $500, which they would give you in cash as like five $100 bills, which everyone would obviously like take a photo with. You know, there were like a, a lot of kind of like tech company things like that, that um, I hadn't experienced before. There were a lot of perks as well, even in the kind of like very minor way of like free soda and free lunch twice a week and things like that, that, that were nice. You know, I think that very rarely in media, especially if, if you started in media any time in the last two decades, do you expect <laughs> to get much by way of perks? And so it was interesting. And then I also got to see that kind of plateau and, you know, to start to get the sense that news was no longer a big focus for the company in terms of priority. And I think, I can't remember how many kind of rounds of layoffs in that way went through, but it certainly weathered the big one. There was one in which that was the one that was leaked to the Wall Street Journal, and they kind of sped up the layoffs as they were happening, and it was very messy and kind of emotionally awful. But that was also, they laid off my my team, essentially, like the whole entertainment team was dismantled. I was moved over to the culture desk you might ask why there was a culture team and an entertainment team. And I think it's a valid <laughs> question. Um, but I was moved over to the culture desk and got to work with people who I really liked. It was a great experience for me, but it was rough. And I, I think there really aren't many. I don't know that there's like much dedicated entertainment coverage left at BuzzFeed News now. The culture team still does some select essays. And there are some reporters who are on different kind of select beats there, but there isn't an entertainment team anymore in any dedicated way. And it's unfortunate because I do think it's a huge industry that clearly deserves journalistic attention. Mm -hmm. At the time, like when they dismantled the entertainment desk, it was in part after the start of Me Too and this feeling that the desk hadn't handled the Weinstein story adequately. And we had had a reporter who had for years essentially been like assigned to, to try and get the Harvey Weinstein story. It was one that a lot of journalists had been working on for years and no one had really cracked. And she, she had like a, a maybe in, but you know, it was this huge ask. And obviously it was not a story that we broke, though BuzzFeed News did end up kind of breaking some significant Me Too stories. But it was odd to, to feel like there was a great disappointment over 
not cracking like one of the hugest entertainment stories that had happened, <laughs> you know, and like one of the toughest. So yeah, I don't know. That continues to be frustrating to me. But I was a BuzzFeed for four years, five years. I don't even remember. Time is meaningless. But uh, <laughs> I was there for a while. Uh, at, you know, and when I was on the culture desk, I was mostly writing longer form essays about mostly film, but some television. But I left in 2019 to take a job I was offered at New York Magazine as a film critic, which is pretty much as about as ideal a job as I could ask for. And I've been there now for a year and a half or so. And it's been great. I felt so incredibly lucky. Yeah, that's great. And then I'd been flipping through my back uh, issues and looking at some of the stuff you wrote and noted down two things to ask about. One we kind of already touched on that that stuck with me was this review of Mulan, I guess, where you kind of, I think it's fair to say you panned it. Yes. And, you know, I, I used to be in China and there was a lot of this, you know, co-production stuff going on and you'd go see Iron Man, whatever. And like, you know, even the audience in China is like, these scenes are a bit weird where like these Chinese actors show up and they're like, drinking whatever brand milk that is in China. And yeah, you know, there's a there was a, a online there's a term for it. They called it a, a flower vase, I think when a Chinese actor would show up what was essentially an ornamental part. <laughs> Just that was like, you know, right. that was like bait for a Chinese audience. That was not kind of central to the movie in any way. Right. And so I guess my my question is more broadly than just about China. But how do you think about pans and like writing bad reviews? And, you know, obviously, some people think you shouldn't do it at all. But and I think that applies way more to books than I would say to, to movies that I've heard that. But yeah, how do you approach writing a bad review? Yeah, you know, it brings us back around to the snark versus smarm debate. I, I think that there is a tendency to equate a negative review with snark. You know, I think it's something that, you know, obviously you can. It can be a snarky review. But I think the idea that anything negative is in some way mean-spirited, innately mean-spirited, it's like either like a kind of willful misunderstanding on the part of whoever's saying that, if it's a filmmaker or someone, a creator saying that, I think it's usually someone who's like trying to put up a bit of psychological armor. <laughs> like, I, I think that there's, I don't know, a tendency to think that somehow, especially in certain industries like books, that like they need to be protected from negative reviews, which I think is, I don't know, ultimately kind of condescending. Like the other week, Lauren Gunderson, who is a playwright, she's, I think, like the most produced playwright in America, but like of work that maybe doesn't play as well with critics on the coasts. She plays really well in regional theater. She was tweeting this thread that was like, when theater comes back, like maybe we can agree that there are no negative reviews for a year. <laughs> you know, she's like, unless it's about like racism or sexism or something like that. But otherwise, like if you were going to have a negative review, just don't say anything. And she got so much pushback on it. She deleted this. And I think that idea, I think that like, one, that anyone has the power now to like destroy the prospects of a work with like a single review. I, I don't think that's the case. And I don't think it has been the case. Certainly not in film for a really long time. But I just also feel like, do you not want work to be taken seriously? You know, there's just like the idea that like only nice things can be said. I, I just feel like it just creates this kind of weird cheerleading 
mindset that I, I find really harmful. I, you know, I think like there's a reason that it was like Lauren Euler became like known for writing pans, like book reviews that were negative. And I think she's like very good at it. But it's interesting that also part of the reason I think she's so famous for it. And like, these are hardly like Dale Peck style kind of like, you know, hatchet job pieces. Like she wrote like thoughtful negative reviews. Part of the reason I think she got so much attention for it was just to your point, there just are so few negative reviews of books in major publications anymore. And I think that that creates this weird vacuum. We're like, surely not all books are great. Are we really, (laughs) are we really saying that, you know? And I think like filmmaking is obviously for all of its current instability and seismic changes with regard to streaming, like it's a much more robust commercial industry. So it feels a lot less fragile in that way. Certainly, especially with any product from the large studios, I don't think anyone feels the need to be protective. But I think also, I don't know, for me, especially with like big franchise work now, I think that's true for that Mulan piece. I find myself writing reviews, especially with regard to pans, that are often as much about the kind of commerce as about movies as product, more than as art or even entertainment. Like Mulan, it's not a good movie. And it's not, I think entertaining, but it is a kind of fascinating bit of corporate product, right? Like it is the Disney corporation attempting to reverse engineer something that they think the Chinese market will like. And in doing so, making something that's kind of racist. (laughs) And I think like that (laughs) is, I think, genuinely interesting to write about and like much more interesting to write about than the fact that the film is ultimately a kind of half-hearted and like poorly shot like wuxia knockoff you know and this kind of humorless action movie i mean that is i think maybe the most kind of contemporary aspect to the criticism i write that i feel is that an awareness of so many of these kind of large ip-based projects that they are as much if not more acts of commerce not art right yeah and mulan yeah is quintessential that Uh, Yeah, the other thing was I noted down, I looked back at your top 10 list for 2020, and uh, the top film was Bacurão, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, Brazil's own. Yeah, which was great to see. And I I love that movie. Like, I've, I've seen it twice, once in theaters and once, like, not, and liked it even better the second time. And it's a funny thing in Brazil, it was kind of like a phenomenon where everybody went, all of society went to go see it, I feel like. And there was this joke, this kind of semi-urban legend that this guy had seen it 10 times with each of his different girlfriends because he couldn't admit to them that he had seen it with somebody else because that would mean the other person was more important than them. That's how like everybody was going to see it. But I was just curious about that choice and about this kind of foreign versus Hollywood divide when it comes to movies. And yeah, I mean, it seemed like kind of, uh, I mean, it's a great movie, but maybe a bold choice. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it's that bold a choice. Like, it's not unusual. I, You know, I think like one of the things that you always are aware of as a film critic is that a lot of the films that you end up prizing the most are not ones that the general public pays nearly as much attention to, you know? And I think that's been more and more the case as like the biggest movies in the world have become almost entirely series and franchises, most of which are about 
superheroes at the moment. And I, you know, I don't mean anything against superhero films as a concept. And some of them I have loved in the past. But like, I do think a lot of them are just totally fine. That they are effective bits of entertainment that don't always kind of hold up as much as you'd like them to. And I think for like the Marvel movies, they do feel as much to me like a kind of large scale TV project as they do film, just because the whole point of it is this kind of episodic experience that continually does work to kind of set up what's going to happen in the next movie and the next movie. And very rarely do those kind of feel like the best movies of the year to me. So I think like last year was obviously a weird year anyway. There were almost no large movies. There were almost no medium-sized movies also. Like aside from Netflix and aside from certain movies that kind of got offloaded onto streaming either by corporate machinations when you're launching HBO Max or by being sold off. Like the best movies of the year much more so than other years, have been small ones. And Baccarat in the US scale was like, I think, a kind of art house hit, but that's so much smaller in terms of the kind of reach it's able to have compared to a Disney movie traditionally. I mean, but I, I loved it, you know? <laughs> I mean, I think, I do think like American media consumption is not maybe as kind of like closed off as it used to be that like one of the benefits of the streaming era of its huge pluses and minuses has been that people are watching more at least tv shows from other parts of the world which is something that like just used to be mostly off the table aside from masterpiece theater and like detective imports in the uk but like you know most people in the u.s don't watch that many foreign films it's still very siloed in this kind of art house idea even though Baccarat is like as much a kind of like clever exploitation film as it is an art house film. I think like what's so brilliant about it is it has one foot in both of those worlds. It doesn't feel that unlikely to me a pick just because I, I feel like it's a smart, I think like really pointed film, but it's also like a great entertainment. It's it's just a tremendously good time in addition to just being filled with all of these kind of fascinating undercurrents with regard to Brazilian history and kind of class and race. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like my top tens are always filled with a lot of odd choices from all over the place. You know, I think I had like a horror film, an Australian horror film that was also about dementia, a documentary that was mostly cut together from a family's home movies while the kind of father has been in prison. You know, I, I think like, if you watch a lot of movies, and you can't possibly watch all movies, like anywhere near, even in a, a year like last year, you can't come anywhere near watching even half of the movies that come out. Like it is, I think, like impossible. But I think if you actually watch a lot of movies, if you're an avid moviegoer, your favorite films of the year are going to automatically become this really idiosyncratic list just because the selection out there is so varied, you know, and especially in terms of imports, there are just all of these riches from other parts of the world, you know, all of these national cinemas that we only get a tiny fraction of. Right. And yeah, I guess I, I feel a little bit silly saying it. it's a bold choice. I guess Parasite was only the year before. But, you know, that was unusual. That was like Parasite was a shocking win. It was like a, it became a phenomenon and it was a shocking win. But like, as Bong Joon-ho said, uh, he's challenging Americans to like get over that like what is it like inch high barrier of subtitles. Uh, right. It's something that we haven't done much. So 
I, I do think like there are definitely times when your film critics are often called like out of touch just for not liking popular cinema enough. And I don't know, most of the film critics I know still watch and like it plenty, but like it feels silly to be like, oh, the best films of the year are always <laughs> American films. <laughs> like, why would that be true? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and about superhero movies, I mean, I I watched Wonder Woman over the holidays with my with my folks and I realized I hadn't seen a superhero movie in like 3 years. And I said this to one of my friends and they were like, "You're lying. There's that just cannot be true." <laughs> like, but I actively avoid it at this point and maybe being abroad it's much easier to avoid it. Mm. Um, but do you have to watch all of those movies? And I, I guess the other thing I wanted to ask was just how being a critic has fundamentally changed your experience of watching movies. I'm sure people ask that question all the time, but, yeah, but I think it's, you know, is it possible to have pure enjoyment of movies having now been a critic for so long? Yeah. You know, I think it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing because like certainly on one level, I have turned this thing that I loved into work. <laughs> and I think that's undeniable. You know, uh, everything I watch, even if it's not something I'm directly assigned to cover, in the back of my head will be, oh, like, well, we could do this. Like, should we do this? Is this really good? We should cover it. Or we could cover it from this way. So I think that I still, you know, I love watching movies. I watch movies for fun, but also I watch movies for obligation. Uh, and I don't want to make that sound like woe is me because it's a pretty, as in terms of like professional obligations, there are much worse ones. But yeah, like I, sometimes I will watch whatever the big thing everyone's going to talk about is out of curiosity, but also out of a sense that I should, because, you know, maybe I should weigh in in some way. I do feel like also, though, what tends to happen is that I will drift in my spare time when I'm just at home, which, you know, the last year I have been almost entirely at home. I will drift towards watching things that I know I'll never write about, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and whether that means just something that's just like off the radar enough or if it means television or if it means short films. Like, I, I, I do feel like that is something... I have self like kind of unconsciously drifted towards in my spare time. And it just feels like a kind of protective measure. I, I don't know, maybe not the healthiest thing. But yeah, I don't know. I, I do feel like it is easier for me also to watch movies like other new movies that I'm not covering for fun when I get to see them in theaters. And I do miss theaters terribly. I think that we have a lot of fights about movies versus television and theaters versus streaming. But I do think like, if this last year has taught me anything, it's that the kind of convenience of streaming is absolutely balanced out by the fact that it is a worse viewing experience to be distracted, to be constantly interrupted, to only half pay attention to things. I just miss, one, going out. I don't think that being home all the time is like the great kind of like decadent luxury that it might have seemed you know, a year ago, certainly, right? you know, have all of the Netflix and chill and delivery food you want. It's kind of ironic hell punishment. But yeah, I think that uh, I also just miss the immersive experience of just being able to pay attention to one thing of having no choice. I, I think that like a lot of people, I found my focus has been worse over the course of the pandemic. And I 
think it's just because of that, like being at home with all of these streams of information constantly coming at you. It's just not good for your attention span. Yeah, I would agree. And yeah, I was curious because I mean, now so much of my free time is spent, you know, watching TV and movies because like, what else can you do? Right. but yeah, it isn't the same as the experience of going to a, a movie theater. Like, you know, it is harder to pay attention to things on streaming, especially when I feel like sometimes I've already watched almost everything I want to watch. And then you get to like, what do I watch next? Yeah, no, I know. Well, that's the thing is like, you know, the the era of streaming, especially with all of these different platforms, kind of felt like it was coming with the promise of just like, unlimited library titles and unlimited anything you want to watch is out there. But the truth is like, there's not that much on Netflix, you know, and there's, there's not that much on a lot of like, especially places like Netflix and Hulu that really have staked themselves on new on like new titles and their on their own original content. Like this year slowed them down in that way. And you're like, wait, you don't have anything new and you're not really putting a lot of effort into getting older movies. What is there? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Okay. So these next two questions are more about stories. And obviously, I usually ask a lot of questions of reporters. It's more about reporting out the story. But I've also had photographers and other people on and it can vary a bit. So the, the first one I usually like to ask is about a story that's gotten away you know, a story that for whatever reason you've wanted to write or wanted to write in the past, but you couldn't quite make it work. Yeah, there is one specific thing. And uh, it was right after I had, like a few months after I'd left Wired, there was a new editor in charge of the kind of entertainment or like culture coverage. And she, I'm not sure why, but she hit me up and she wanted to know if I would be interested in writing a feature on Martin Scorsese's film foundation, which would involve traveling to, I think, Rome to see his film preservation efforts. Uh, (laughs) It was like one of those stories that sounded absurdly great, but I had also just started a staff job. And also, frankly, like I would have been biting off more than I could have chewed at that point. I was very junior and would have no idea how to begin to write a glossy magazine feature. (laughs) Um, But it's funny to think back on that moment and to be offered this like dream opportunity that I was just not remotely ready for either financially or professionally or personally. I couldn't just quit my job and do that. I just, I didn't have the money, especially, you know, given the, the way in which glossy magazines often pay after you're published, certainly at that time, after like three months after you had maybe put travel expenses on your own card. So yeah, that's what I think about sometimes as just like the absurdity of like how great that offer was. And I don't really kick myself because I think if I had said yes, it would have been a disaster. I just would not have done a very good job. But now, you know, I would fall all over myself to do something like that. So yeah, that is like to to get something when you're just not in a place to be able to do it, to get that kind of opportunity, that can really sting because it's not something that I was like, oh, self-doubt really held me back. No, I was very right to say no, but <laughs> you know, it did hurt. Right, right. Yeah, I can see that sticking with you. And then the second type of story I like to ask is a story that you're proud of. 
again, it can be whatever, a review, a story, what have you, but just uh, tell us a little bit about what the story was and how you went about doing it kind of from start to finish. Uh, well, I mean, since it's it was recently done, I would say my Chloe Zhao profile. It was my first big profile for the magazine. It was my first cover story ever. I think she was someone that I had been following for such a long time. Her second film, The Rider, was like my favorite film of that year when it came out. I just thought it was incredible. And I wrote about it and then I tried so hard to get an interview. I was at BuzzFeed News at the time, you know, just like constantly following up with her her agent. Uh, she didn't even have a, a PR rep at the time about the movie that was Nomadland that I think at that point was like still kind of being kept really quiet. So to actually get that was like so rewarding. And then I was really happy with how the piece turned out. It was funny is that they fought me a lot on it. Searchlight, the publicists, you know, all had quibbles and there she had quibbles. Uh, and I think, you know, for me, like, I, you know, the challenge, as anyone would tell you over lockdown is like doing profiles over Zoom is just like really not great. You know, right. you whatever time you get, there's an automatic distance to it. But also it's really hard to kind of get color, you know, to add those textures to uh, a piece about someone. But for me, I was also interested in doing, given that my access was, I think I had like two slightly over hour long sessions with her, which is like not much at all, but I got a lot of secondary access. And, you know, when I was being pitched the story by my editors or like told like it was going to happen, we had talked about it as something that was going to be like, we're going to bring in a lot of kind of like a film criticism approach to include a lot of that aspect in addition to being about her. And I think... You know, she's, I think, a complicated person as someone who is a Chinese national making movies about the American heartland. And her first two movies were specifically set on the Pine Ridge Reservation. You know, they're almost entirely about Lakota characters. And I think to kind of hone in on that tension of like the ways in which she felt freed of the kind of burdens of American history in making films about those characters and the ways in which the community didn't always agree. That was really interesting to me. Like her feelings as like someone who is kind of um, a wanderer, uh, someone who was able to leave China and go to boarding school in the UK and then college in the US and to kind of move very freely around the world and how that's affected her sense of identity. I think I really kind of like was able to close in on that and kind of like analyze like what that actually means and the kind of like freedoms of that, but also the privileges of feeling like you don't belong anywhere. I think like there are many ways in which you can feel you don't belong anywhere, but if it's because you're able to move around the world very freely, that is a kind of a very privileged kind of, of rootlessness. And I think I was able to get at a lot of those things in a way that I was really happy about. And I think, you know, I, you know, as someone, as someone who's mixed race, as someone who's half Chinese, I think, I and a lot of my colleagues who are also Asian American have a lot of complicated feelings about how artists of color sometimes get covered. When people write a piece that is very much like just framed in terms of like the importance of representation and these milestones, you do tend to kind of flatten someone into the context of like American history and racism, right? <laughs> like, like, like it by, by having that be the main context. And I think right. it was really important for me, especially in writing about her 
to both obviously include acknowledgement of those milestones, but also to fully flesh her out as like this complicated, ambitious, interesting person for whom her background was part of her story, but not the entire all-consuming focus. Well, I mean, that's an interesting challenge, having to do this all by Zoom and by phone, talking to people to flesh things out. How did you end up like leading it off? And how did you construct some of that, I guess, color type stuff that you'd normally get from following a person around for the day or something like that? How did you come at that? Yeah, I just read everything, every interview she had ever done, I think, Um, (laughs) you know, like from the beginning. That helped a lot in that I already had a pretty good sense of biography for her. So rather than needing her to kind of walk through all of the details, I could kind of ask for texture around particular moments, you know, especially in her kind of childhood and like her formative years and going to school. So I think that helped a lot with having limited time. But also, I think just kind of picking themes that I knew I wanted to write about and then making sure that I got her to speak about those in particular, you know, and then when something came up to like zoom in on a particular moment. It's tricky, though. And I think like, it's not nearly as good as like a personal encounter in that way. But like, yeah, you have to kind of be like, wait, let's roll back. Like, tell me about that thing. Like, let's go into detail. Like, bring me into that moment. That's what you have to do. But it's certainly, I think obviously the last year has taught us that you don't have to be in person for a lot of work, for meetings, for all of these interactions. But I do think it has emphasized certain things that you lose by doing them only digitally. And I think like for certain profiles and interviews, you can feel like you're losing a lot. And I think for Chloe, it was okay because I was more kind of focused on the arc of her movies anyway, on like kind of threading her biography through her movies. So it didn't feel as lacking maybe those tangible moments. But I think for a lot of more traditional profiles, that's something that you just, it's this void that you have to work around. Right. Do you remember how you let it off? Like what is the, how do you open the story? Uh the you know in terms of my lead for the piece yeah 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 because i mean a lot of the times it's like you know the profiles open with an anecdote or something oh like yeah that. no it's um chloe Zhao used to say that she would forget she's asian which is something she has said uh in kind of explaining her feelings of like rootlessness and uh feeling like a not strong sense of identity in interviews so yeah that was how i let it off it was i think a lot of kind of using past interviews she had done to feel like at least we were starting in mid-conversation somewhere. Right. That's interesting. I'll have to check it out. I do think a lot about uh, like third culture kids, I guess, Mm -hmm. is kind of what a lot of people call them. And working at an international wire service, you kind of meet a lot of these people. Yeah, I can imagine. And I do wonder, like, I, at many times, having been abroad for 10 years, feel a bit unstuck, and I'll I'll go back to the U.S., and I won't feel quite at home. But mm-hmm. I can only imagine if you grew up in that, too, and like, yeah, where where is home, really? Um, it's tricky because also it's not like you necessarily can feel like you've merged seamlessly into wherever you're living, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> like, you are still the foreign correspondent. You are still 
the expat sometimes, you know, like, and that, that line can be very blurry and like the longer you stay and the kind of the way you live can really, you know, determine how much you feel like you're belonging somewhere. But yeah, I do think there is a way in which third culture kids, but yeah, like in general, I think also the children of the wealthy seem like they're kind of citizens of wealth, right? <laughs> like it's its right, own kingdom. Yeah. It's its own kingdom. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, uh, it, most of these people uh, live like privileged lives, as you said. And like, yeah, it's just uh, they're not lacking in their lifestyle in any way. It's just this kind of, you know, the drawback of the kind of rootlessness a lot of the time. But yeah, and uh, <laughs> I mean, a lot of them, it drives them to be foreign correspondents, or I guess in Chloe Zhao's case, she, you know, follows around uh, Native Americans, you know, in the heartland. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, Frances McDormand and a bunch of... And I, I should say, I think Chloe Zhao is a great filmmaker. Like, there's a reason I wanted to profile her. And I think one of the things that's interesting about her, and there is a bit of, like, division here for some people, is that she is coming from outside, but making movies that feel very organic to the communities she's showing. And these communities are often ones in the American heartland and ones that are, like, kind of shaped by poverty and... It's really interesting to think of someone who's kind of capable of putting a lot of herself aside to be that present in the world that you're putting on screen. It speaks to the eternal question we have, the kind of fight, not just in film, but, you know, of like, who gets to tell stories and like, do you have to come from the world you're showing to responsibly tell a story about it? Okay, and then we can move on to the faster-paced questions. Uh, so the next part is the lightning round. It's faster-paced, but feel free to answer at whatever length you like. Do you feel ready? Let's do it. Okay, so the first question is, what is a must-read publication that you look at mostly for work? So I would say in your case, you know, beyond New York Magazine and Vulture, what are like the top one or two sites you check out for film news or film criticism? For film news and film criticism, I, you know, for film news, I look at the trades, and they all tend to cover a lot of the same things. Uh, for film criticism, I guess I, I would say I read Substacks. Oh. I think that that's where, I don't know, like Nick Pinkerton is a writer whose work I love, and he just does these like kind of very long Substack newsletters. I think he's just a brilliant writer, but he's often not writing about contemporary cinema. He's writing about a whole array of things. But I, I think like, you know, when it comes to modern or like contemporary releases, I follow bylines more than I follow outlets because as mentioned previously, film criticism tends to be really <laughs> uh, shaped by freelancing these days. So it's more writers that I follow than any particular outlet. Yes, unfortunately, I, I think that there's no one place that has ownership over criticism in that way. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And then what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch for fun? So it can be whatever medium... You know, it doesn't have to be text, but uh, a journalistic in nature uh, publication. Well, it's funny now that I'm thinking about newsletters. I really like Ryan Broderick's newsletter. He is a former co-worker of mine at BuzzFeed, and he just kind of specialized in covering 
internet stuff, I would say, you know, which is a real challenge to write about. I think there are not a lot of reporters that do it well, because it requires simultaneously writing about things that can be so trivial and stupid, and you know, like, like ridiculous, <laughs> and at the same time can like be these seismic things shaping the world, right? Like, especially over the kind of like last few years of the Trump administration, like, how do you explain QAnon to someone, especially in those early days? Now it's gotten a lot of mainstream coverage, but I think the people who were best at covering it earlier were people who were really, really grounded in just like stories that bubble up on the internet, because you had to be to explain what this thing was. So yeah, Ryan Broderick writes a newsletter called Garbage Day that is just about things that are going on online. And sometimes they're just like really ridiculous. And sometimes they're kind of like, much larger stories or kind of analysis about the commerce and the algorithms behind these things. It's a really kind of funny, enjoyable newsletter, but I think it also just like keeps me up to date on things that are almost impossible to flesh out yourself if you're not deeply ingrained in any particular subculture online. It would just take forever. So it's also very helpful in that way. Yeah, that sounds great. I'll definitely check that one out. What's the best journalistic article piece, again, whatever medium that you've consumed recently? And again, it can't be from the publication you work for. It's not a kind of flashy piece, I would say, but the Times, New York Times, did a piece like 10 days ago. It was, it's called Asian Americans are being attacked. Why are hate crime charges so rare? And I thought it was, uh, it threaded the needle in something, this idea that is, I think really complicated and difficult, which is at the heart of why it took so long and has been so hard to cover the kind of surge in anti-Asian American violence in the U.S. that has been happening over the, you know, like last few months, which is that like, one, it's really difficult to cover or prosecute a hate crime, to prove something is a hate crime and then mm -hmm. kind of classify it that way. But also, I think it also brings up the idea of like, how do we classify anti-Asian violence? Like there are no kind of classic... Like, like, it's less codified in terms of, like, the historical symbols. As they put it, there's no widely recognized symbol of anti-Asian hate comparable to a noose or swastika, you know? And, like, the Asian American community is actually, like, this vast, not unified collection of people from, like, many different countries. But I, it also kind of raises the question of, like, what do we want when we push for more things to be classified as hate crimes? In some ways, it just speaks to wanting this existing racism to be taken more seriously, on the other side, you're like, are you actually pushing for like more severe charges? You know, like, are we pushing for incarceral uh, answers to these things? And I think like it kind of was a really smart bit of reporting, getting at something very complicated. And I think a lot of the reporting on anti-Asian violence previous to the Atlanta shootings and then during the Atlanta shootings has like been very flawed just because the heart of this is these really complicated ideas. And I think... This is one of the better things about that. Yeah, I'll have to check out what it's what's it called again? It's called Asian Americans are being attacked. Why are hate crime charges so rare? Cool. Is there any particular subject matter you read into or geek out about that isn't related to your job? It's not quite, I think, like the right answer for this question. But the thing that I consume a lot of that really has nothing to do with work is I consume so many fiction podcasts like audio dramas, really. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And it's still a kind of like, not a major subsection of podcasts. But I think even when they're 
kind of not well done. I find them super interesting. You know, it is simultaneously this throwback to like radio drama <laughs> and and also often like these very kind of internet based material. Like there are all of these podcasts that are just about like reading horror stories from Reddit that people have posted anonymously <laughs> on Reddit that are about just like doing kind of dramatic recreations of those. So I just find it like this very messy, but fascinating world. Um, and yeah, I consume a lot of those. Could you give us an example of one just out of curiosity? Uh, sure. I, I would say like my favorite one was this one called the Black Tapes podcast. And one of the kind of downsides of the audio drama podcast is that they're like the internet. It tends to skew overwhelmingly like genre, you know, so almost everything is like horror or fantasy or sci-fi. Uh, and after a while, you can start to be like, okay, <laughs> like I need <laughs> something else. But the Black Tapes is like kind of um, X-Files-y podcast about someone who is a professional skeptic who disproves so-called reports of supernatural phenomenon. And then his the Black Tapes are the ones he has yet to disprove. But I think what's, like, what's so pleasurable about this podcast, and it's over now, but it, it's done in the style of serial, even though it's scripted, it is done in this very pitch perfect recreation of an NPR style show, including NPR <laughs> voice and including a lot of meta commentary on journalistic choices and ethics in a style that was very serial esque about like, I wondered if I was overstepping my bounds in terms of like, should I ask him this question and blah, blah, blah. And I just, I really enjoyed that aspect of it, maybe more so than the supernatural aspect. Very cool. And then if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead, and you would have their career, who would it be? It's hard for me to answer this because I don't know that I even want someone's actual career. <laughs> I guess I would say like any film critic would always want the Pauline Kael era when like one, you could write like 10,000 words or whatever, you know, you were spared, like you could write these giant pieces of criticism, but also that like movies were really important to people then culturally there was like you know there was a huge amount of interest and so there was a huge amount of interest in criticism as well it felt really alive and weighty and important to the cultural conversation and I don't think it's incidental now but it's certainly not given the same heft as it was in that kind of heyday in which Andrew Saris and Pauline Kael like slugged it out I, and I, I think, like, I would not want those careers, but I, I am envious of the kind of importance to your work, the kind of interest in it. Okay. And then what is one thing most people don't know about you? Oh, God. I don't know. I don't know that people know that much about me. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Any fun fact you want to put in the public? Sure. I guess... I retained like a trace of a British accent, even though we, we like left when I was two or three. I think I retained like a kind of very occasional trace of one for like a while afterwards that I mostly know from watching home movies. And it, it's funny because it like would come and go in this very like Madonna after she'd married Guy Ritchie era kind of way. But also, <laughs> you know, like my family was not as from like uh, on that side of the family is from like South London. So I would sound sometimes to be like... Who's cheeky, um, which is a really <laughs> funny thing to hear out of like the, the mouth of a six-year-old girl. That's funny. Do you, have you been back at all and do you slip into it at all or no? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I tend to like absorb accents from whoever I'm talking to in ways that are really embarrassing. 
already. So I do kind of like, we'll start to pick up a bit of inflections, but I don't know if it's necessarily me like returning to something or just me picking it up uh, because that's who I'm around. Sure. What is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why? Well, for this, I tried to think of um, things that were specifically about critics. But, you know, it is funny. Critics, maybe unsurprisingly, are always portrayed in like very unflattering ways in movies (laughs) and television. (laughs) And I think like the... It's not flattering either, but I think the best one is actually there's a Daniel Close comic called Justin M. Damiano, and it is about an online film critic who you know runs his own website, and it is this kind of internal monologue from him that is this kind of mental stream of like self-aggrandizement and self-loathing, and like these constant maybe like contradictory feelings about the role of a critic with regard to like supporting an artist or supporting a work with regard to like going against the crowd. I think the reason that it stings is that as opposed to a lot of other kind of like unflattering critics and like Birdman or Lady in the Water, that M. Night Shyamalan movie has like a hilariously terrible film critic character. It's like clear just revenge. As opposed to that, like Justin M. Damiano feels like it has an actual understanding of just like all of the darkest thoughts uh, (laughs) that a critic can have over times and like the worst parts of a critic. And it handles that in this like really kind of efficient way. And I I think that it's really good in that sense. So Justin M. Damiano, that would be my pick. Cool. Yeah, I've not heard of it. I'll look for it. And then the last question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? I think I would really like to run like a Christmas tree farm. (laughs) It just seems very peaceful. (laughs) I don't know how like, uh, you know, environmentally friendly it actually is as a job, but it just sounds nice. You just uh, spend the year maintaining your Christmas trees and then you have your big season. You sell them off. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, uh, in Wisconsin, where I grew up, there were a lot of Christmas tree farms and go out there. And yeah, I mean, it's one one time of the year. And it's good business. Um, <laughs> exactly. Better business than the pumpkin patch or the, the other <laughs> seasonal, you know. Absolutely. Cool. Okay, well, this went great. So I'll just wrap up by saying thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Allison. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Allison Wilmore, film critic for New York Magazine and the website Vulture. I'll post links to some of Allison's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a review saying what you like about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, May 23rd. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.